Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by the... Cosmo Kramer to my George Costanza, All Curtis right. Wister. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm well, Ben. How are you? I'm well. We're really happy to, to have a really special guest here today. Uh, one of the topics we want to be diving into uh, in the show today is facing and fighting mental illness in retirement. Mm. And that's that's uh, when we start talking to our clients about not just goals, right, is, is things that are happy and things that they're trying to attain in their life, but you also have to focus in on their fears, and, and fears is, is something that it gets pretty uncomfortable that people don't want to talk about. And one of the things that you, you see of, you know, where, as we're supporting clients through maybe 30 years of their retirement or 8,000 days is that they may not even address it early in their retirement, but mm-hmm. at some stage that inevitably there's enough of our clients that are in a situation where they themselves are, are dealing with a mental illness or their, their spouse is. And what we find is that a lot of our clients, they don't know where to go and they don't know who to talk to. Yeah. They're scared, right? And they don't know what they don't know about it. Mm. They, they've never faced it before. And then they come in and they, they're very, at a very vulnerable place. And sometimes if it's them, they may be talking to us about it or it's, you know, I, I'm coming here and I'm coming without my spouse who I think is afflicted and I don't know where to go. And so there, it's a very vulnerable time. Yeah. And there, so what we wanted to do is really talk to somebody uh, that in, in Maine is an expert about this and having a really full-fledged conversation about that fear and, and maybe addressing some things that maybe there's unfounded in terms of fears and things that maybe they could be thinking about to better prepare for uh, dealing with Alzheimer's, dementia, or other sorts of mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. So today we, we brought in Dr. Cliff Singer. And uh, so Cliff uh, works at Acadia Hospital and really specializes in, in geriatric mental illness. And that's why we wanted to have him here today. So uh, welcome, Cliff. Uh, happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we wanted to, uh, in terms of the format of our show, and again, the title of the show is Retirement Success in Maine, we, we always like to, to spend a little time just getting to know you, right, is, is in terms of why, why are you passionate about this field? But maybe we could just kind of start with growing up kind of the growing up experience and kind of getting into the the medical field. How did that start for you? Well, I, I grew up in New York. I was initially wanted to be a veterinarian, actually. Okay. <laughs> then, I, then I spent the summer working for a veterinarian and realized I don't want to do that at all. But I was interested more in talking to people and working with people. And when I was in college, I volunteered with Special Olympics and worked with kids with developmental disabilities. And uh, I was a zoology major interested in brain development through uh, through the ages, through evolution, and working with the kids with developmental disability. I figured I wanted to, I thought I'd become a um, pediatric neurologist. Okay. Okay. I went to medical school in Florida. My parents moved to Florida when I was in college. So I went, I went there for medical school and we had the first geriatrics rotation, um, in the, in the country at a medical school. Hmm. Spent six weeks, uh, at a retirement community as a medical student and was fascinated by it because, uh, this was in the late 1970s and the older adults at that time had 19th century childhoods. So. Yeah. I, I really, you know, I love the stories. I, I got to meet two Spanish American war veterans. And wow. And so I started thinking about geriatrics as a career, and that it, that didn't uh, that didn't really gel until after medical school and residency. I, I went to Portland, Oregon, to do residency at Oregon Health and Science University, and I got to do a geriatrics rotation during uh, my psychiatry rotation. I chose psychiatry because uh, it was either that or neurology, and neurology in those days was a, a, a diagnostic specialty. It wasn't a lot you can do for people. We had we had a few things that we can do, a few drugs to treat seizure disorders, sure. migraine, and Parkinson's disease. But mostly it was, well, this is what you got. And, and geriatric much. at that time too, right, is, you know, and we see this from the financial lens, is in terms of people living longer today has kind of been a, a, a newer experience, right, is 
is that, you know, median ages have continued to rise over the last 30 years, right? So people may be living uh, or were living a lot uh, shorter durations than maybe they were, were or are today. So, well, there's always been old people. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. Even going back to ancient times, there's always been super, uh, you know, su- super survivors. Sure. You know, survivors. Lifespan hasn't changed much. Health span has changed a little bit. Sure. But yeah, I mean, huge, it's huge, huge increase in numbers of people making it to old gotcha. age. Gotcha. Uh, and geriatrics, you know, 40, 50 years ago, or 30-something years ago, and I was getting into it. I mean, there were still, it was focused, the geriatrician's skill is really focused on old, old age, not young, old age. Right. That's starting to change as we start thinking more about prevention. Mm. And prevention has to start much earlier. But the clinical skills of a geriatrician really come into play when people are passing uh, the 75 or 80-year landmark. That's when people actually really do start to get old. Okay. Psychiatry was of interest to me because even back then there was a lot more I thought we can, you, you could do with people. Mm-hmm. Um, we had more treatments available, and it was also the personal relationship with people that counted so much. And geriatric psychiatry combined my interest in medicine, neurology, and psychiatry in one. So I ended up doing a fellowship in geriatric medicine, which combined well with my psychiatry training. So that essentially kind of launched that passion for you then, right, in terms of right, this is something that I, I really can see myself making a difference in, I really want to do. So in Portland, Oregon, that was kind of where that formed for you? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I loved the stories these people told about their childhoods. And uh, and clinically, I, I was really fascinated by their experiences uh, aging and, you know, why some people were able to do it so gracefully and other people struggled so much. So from there, because I know one of the questions we always like to ask our guests there is why Maine, right? Because Maine is, <laughs> it feels like Maine is, is a place where you kind of have to choose. Right? Uh, it's, you know, yeah. Winters can be hard and there's four seasons and, you know, we, we have some challenges with the, the rural demographics that we have here. So how did you, how did you kind of go from Portland, Oregon on the extreme side of the country over to over to the East Coast, over to Maine. How did how did that kind of launch to you? Why, indeed, I spent twenty five years in in Oregon. After my residency and fellowship training, I stayed on the faculty. My daughter, who grew up in Portland, wanted to uh, make documentary films, and she wanted to move to New York to do that. My parents, aunts and uncles, and cousins were mostly on the on the East Coast, so I decided to come back come back east after being away twenty five years and. Uh-huh. Went to, uh, was recruited for a job at the University of Vermont in Burlington. I was there for four years. Loved Vermont, not happy with my job. And a a resident of mine from the University of Vermont recruited me to start a geriatric program here at uh, at Acadia Hospital in Bangor. Nice. So I I came here nine years ago, started the the program, and have never been happier. Good for you. Awesome. You know, again, I kind of like the, when when I hear people is this whole purpose is, Finding a purpose in retirement, but also finding a purpose in life, right? Is, is this, well, you know, if you're running from a career just to find then that purpose, then that's pretty hard to kind of get to that point too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, always great when you're finding in each stage of your life, you're going, all these experiences I had to build up to this for me to get to this point to really find my purpose and, and get, get that happiness. And, and it all reverberates, which is what I really love. So Cliff, can you give us uh, in terms of your, you're now in Maine and you're launching this program? Can you just get into a little bit more detail about what what that program is that you helped uh, launch at Acadia Hospital and what services you're providing as part of that, again, with your specialty in geriatric uh, psychology? Yeah, sure. I named the uh, clinic we started the Mood and Memory Clinic, and that refers to the two broad categories that a geriatric psychiatrist would uh, be concerned with, and one is mental and emotional disorders, problems, mm-hmm. um, mood, anxiety, sleep disorders. And uh, the memory refers to the cognitive disorders, cognitive impairment and dementia caused by you know many, many different disorders. And that's part of our expertise, trying to figure out why a person is having cognitive problems. Gotcha. And how has the program grown? So when you started, was it just you? Uh, you know, <laughs> how is it? Because obviously you have funding things that that happen with grants and and things along those lines. But how has it changed over the last nine years and developed? 
So in the beginning, I was partnered with with one nurse, and um, Acadia Hospital did not have a reputation in the community as an institution that was interested in helping older adults. The focus was really on children, uh, adolescents, and and young adults. Mm -hmm. So we were starting from scratch. Now, you know, there were some older adults seeking services there, but it was a, a slow growth initially. But once word got out, things grew quickly. And so by 2012, we had three nurses and three providers, mm-hmm. two, two psychiatrists and a nurse practitioner. That's our current model. Each nurse follows uh, about 250 to 300 patients. Um, and uh, with the three nurses, we have about, you know, generally about 900, 900 patients at any given time. We get two to four referrals a day, mostly from primary care providers, but families and patients themselves call as well. Some neurologists refer to us, some agencies refer to us. In 2013, I thought that we had grown to the point where we can start a research program. So we started our Alzheimer's disease uh, clinical trials program and have been, uh, that's been very successful in partnership with the Eastern Maine Medical Center's Clinical Research Center, which facilitates um, clinical research throughout Northern Light Health, what is now Northern Light Health. So that's been a great partnership and we've had a very successful, uh, very successful growth in our research program. And now, are branching out into uh, grant-funded research with collaborators at Jackson Lab and uh, University of Maine and others around the state. And I was reading about that. It kind of had some really great uh, positive press that was, I think it was last year, the Bangor Daily was covering that and you're seeing it out there. One of the things I was reading about that study, which I really loved, was a quote from one of the participants in the in the study. And it, this just resonated to me because we're we're hearing this quote almost with a lot of the conversations we have. And uh, and I'll read it for you. Is, uh, it was Bonnie Johnson saying, you always have that in the back of your mind that, is it you? Do you have it? Are you going to get it? She says. So I really, so I, I do want to just touch on that study because I, I think that was a, it's a really good question to ask is it must have been tough to find people willing to say, hey, I want to embrace, and it was a clinical trial that you were working on, and to embrace it, but also know the result. Because in terms of your studies, it's not like you're trying to develop or look at progression, right? Where people are, they may have markers. Either prevention or, or progression. Or progression in people who do not yet have any symptoms, yep. but do have risk factors like certain biomarkers, which we can talk about later, Yeah, and to see whether they de- start to develop memory problems or other symptoms over time. And that's going to be pretty scary to you know raise your hand and say, <laughs> hey, I'm willing to participate in this. I do, I do think I have risk factors, maybe, uh, maybe family history, and which is why I'm coming to you, and then finding those biomarkers to then participate in this study and see if I am progressing towards that or not. It's a, it's a very mortal thing to face. Mm-hmm. It's a very it scary is. thing to admit to it um, is. and in approach. Um, so can you talk about that in terms of developing that, that study at, at Acadia Hospital and, and finding those people and how, how they've kind of faced that? Well, we have many studies. That's, that, yep, yep, that, was, sure. that, was, that was just one. Yep. Um, but uh, the idea uh, either of uh, coming forward to volunteer for a, what's essentially a prevention study to identify particular risk factors that you might have mm-hmm. and then to be followed over time to see if you develop symptoms and to be randomly assigned to a treatment that you know could potentially help or not uh, it takes a lot of courage uh, I was concerned that we would not be able to develop a, a, a robust research program here in a you know with mm-hmm. relative uh, <laughs> yeah. sparse population yeah I've been very very pleased that we've been so successful. Turns out that people are highly motivated to uh, contribute to research. Not everyone, of course. And some people do, as you say, don't want to don't yeah. want to know. Many people do. Yep. Uh, and they not only want to know for themselves; they want to know for their kids and their grandkids, and they want to yeah. be part of the solution. So it's not that hard to find people. Generally, they have family histories. Or sometimes, you know, they're concerned because subjectively they feel like they're starting to have some memory problems. But they they want to step forward and and try to help. Once people have a diagnosis, say they've been part of our clinic or have been evaluated elsewhere and, and have a diagnosis, 
either a mild cognitive impairment, which is sort of an early stage, or early dementia, often from Alzheimer's disease, then they or their family members are uh, often very motivated to um, get something. Just like uh, oncology clinics, cancer centers Mm -hmm. rely on clinical trials to find new treatments, so do we in Alzheimer's disease and cognitive disorder centers. Um, We rely on clinical trials to try to identify new treatments. And uh, so people recognize that and are really highly motivated to participate. And we're the we're currently the only center in Maine doing clinical trials, so uh, we get people around from all over the state. Great. In regards to the state of Maine, you know we're we're one of the older states in the nation. Yep. Um, second, I, I I think is depending on whatever study you look at there. Yeah. Median median age is where the we're the oldest, but yep. there, you know there's quite a few states clustered around there. We're old though. Sure. <laughs> so in 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 what you just said in terms of uh, the clinical trial piece, but also is I know so we're in Bangor today, and you find that Northern Light Health in Bangor, especially, is a service center to lots of you know Eastern and uh, Northern Maine as well. Are you are you finding that you, you just talked about some amazing statistics about people being referred in? In terms of that referral process, so part of it's just reputation of people going, that's where you go. Are you finding that this is speeding up because of demographics um, of the state, of you're seeing more referrals coming in? There, there's Is there more need than you've thought there were or, or currently is? And what do you think then going forward about your services and, and kind of attacking the need that you see in the state of Maine? So uh, we have a real problem with access to services. Um, yes, there's increasing demand or request for our help. Is it because we're becoming better known? Uh, we have a reputation? Sure, that I'm sure that's part of it. I can't say that's just because of the aging of the population. There are more older adults. We can look at the demographic projections of uh, the increase, rapid rise of people with, say, Alzheimer's disease and the rapid increase in older adults who are at risk for mental illnesses, uh, depression especially. So, yeah, the numbers the numbers are increasing as the population increases. Sadly, uh, we can't. Our uh, service uh, is limited in its in its size, mostly because of space limitations. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a ten month wait list now, which is unacceptable. Wow. Yeah, um, and we've started a philanthropy campaign to to um, so that we could build a build more space and uh, scale our scale our program up to the point where it can meet community need. It, it needs to be three times the current size. And then going forward, right, is it's not only just meeting the current capacity to need, but also what you think projected going forward is going to have to be, mm, right? That's true. So you always have to continue to keep up with those trends as it as it goes. That's right. Fortunately, we're not alone. Other people are, we have a unique program in the state, but others, uh, there are other geriatric assessment clinic and, and dementia specialists in the state, particularly in central and southern Maine. So there, there are others trying to... Uh, do this work too, but but we have a unique place, not only because of our location, but the the integration with research is unique. Yeah, great. I wanna I wanna kind of switch over to again some of the questions that we've been having or or conversations with our clients. And one of the things that really comes into for our conversations is there, again there's this concern about developing mental illnesses as they age. So if someone's right now you know early retirement or maybe pre retirement and they're thinking about or they have this worry or this fear about developing mental illness. How founded is is that common concern that in my life I am going to develop a mental illness and I'm really very scared about that? Like how common, I guess, would be would be the question. Let's uh, let's think about mental and emotional disorders in one category yep. and cognitive disorders in another because risk factors and overall risk is very different. Okay, the a person's risk for developing an emotional or mental disorder, such as major depression or a variety of anxiety disorders, is based primarily, one, on early childhood and early adult history. Did they have problems as a young adult um, or even as a middle-aged adult? If they had good psychological, healthy psychological development and, and good psychological health throughout childhood and adulthood, 
the, their risk of developing a problem later in life is much less. Okay. However, there are things that happen later in life that overwhelm even the most well-adjusted and adaptable people. Mm. Isolation, loss of mobility and independence, loss of loved ones uh, take their toll. Chronic pain and medical problems that affect a person's ability to live independently and do the things they want to do are things that are very, very challenging to cope with. And some people do it extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. But even even the best among us, the most well-adjusted and adaptable among us are, are challenged by, by loss of functional independence and, and isolation. And perhaps most importantly, a loss of sense of purpose, mm-hmm. yep. which is so essential for a person's um, feeling of feeling of worth. Those are very, very difficult challenges. And in, I know um, we talked a little bit off air, Diane Walsh uh, with Eastern Area Agency on Aging. That's one of the things that she was saying, right, is the biggest thing that she was seeing for an issue for that population that she works with has been that isolation. Yeah. Is that, you know, they, they've lost a loved one and they're living by themselves. Winter's hard. Yep. We're rural. Yeah. Uh, people want to live in their lifelong homes that are not made to be lived in during if you're dealing with certain physical or, or mental issues. And how do you how do you keep keep that person there? And, and they're not socializing it with anybody. Right. Is they lose their loved one. They get depressed. They go inward and they just shut down. Right. And so it she's so I just echoing what you said there is that we heard that from her. And it's just um it, it's something that I think is it, it feels pervasive. It, it, it seems like it's a common enough thread that you were hearing. And I don't know if it's just because we're in the Northeast and the harshness of a winter and, and that help hurts, but also how we're how rural we are as a group. And it's it's tough. We don't have really great transportation systems for people to get into a, a coffee group or meet meet to do something uh, for physical if you're living an hour and a half to two hours away. Right. Right. And it's all those things are, are, are really hard challenges to overcome where people have this uh, ingrained sense of I have to live in my house that I've lived in forever. Yeah. The uh, the ties that bind uh, or the systems that support a person in a, in a rural environment can be so tenuous. And even even in small towns, for example, uh, recently a Tim Hortons in Old Town closed. And yeah. That was a senior center for, for yeah. people. Mm hmm. How can they go to the Dunkin' Donuts or the McDonald's? It's two miles down the road. Yeah, uh, but some people don't drive, and they they hate to ask for help, and uh, it's hard to change patterns. Uh, but that's an old town, you know. If yeah. in, in many towns, if there was just one place and it closed down, there, there's no other option ex- unless you drive ten or fifteen miles. So, um, and the same thing with social supports. If a friend dies or or a family member moves away. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Just very, uh, very few uh, layers of support uh, to keep people living alone. I want to go back to to one of the things you said and going to the emotional and mood uh, disorders, yep. right, and, and depression especially. And if I'm in a situation of it's me and I'm alone, or it's me and a spouse, how would I know that I'm beginning to develop some sort of emotional or mood disorder? Like, what what would I be seeing in myself and and maybe, and that also might be tough because people might not be aware enough of themselves to be able to to <clears throat> sense it or objectively measure themselves. But what what would they see like if they're starting to develop that? Like, what sort of factors would they they kind of have? You know, it's it's often a family member or a friend who sees it first. So uh, might see the anxiety or the irritability or the social withdrawal. Uh, the person themselves may not feel sad or hopeless the kinds of feelings that a person would classically identify as depression. They may just feel frustrated, worthless, alone, mm-hmm. irritable, cranky, not wanting to go out. But they may not understand or see the underlying emotional issue. Others would see it, might see it first. Um, and no, that's not always true. I mean, people do on, on themselves often seek help. Women are much more likely to voluntarily seek help than, yeah. than the men will. Anxiety is often a symptom that drives people to seek help because anxiety is really physically uncomfortable mm-hmm. or it manifests in, in physical symptoms like mm-hmm. uh, 
heart palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain, gastrointestinal problems. Um, so they may seek, they may go to their primary care provider and the primary care or emergency department even, particularly if it's a sudden chest pain due to anxiety, which is quite common. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they may first get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and there may be a depression underlying that. And if it's a if it's a loved one, right, that that's noticing that that so it's an external party noticing that about you. Yep. What's the best way to actually directly communicate that, right? Because here you have somebody that's really probably anxious about lots yeah. of things or depressed, yeah. and yeah. and then pointing that out to them in in a way that is constructive and not destructive and makes it worse. Yeah. I'm sure that's a lot of the the external party's anxiety about that moment, right? Is how do I right. then carefully tell you that maybe we should be doing something to to get you back on a on a better road or or helping you address this or thinking about again kind of getting you out of that? Yeah, right. It's challenging. You know, the person themselves may be in denial that they have a problem. Yep. Maybe other family members are in denial. Oh, dad's fine. Yep. Maybe the doctor is even in denial about it. Oh, he's just getting old. You hear that a lot. Hmm. And so it, it can take, it can take some persistence and, uh, gentle persuasion. Or if a person is not willing to consider a psychological explanation for, or psychiatric explanation for what symptoms they're having, you know, in, in fact, there are physical problems that need to be evaluated and ruled out as an underlying cause of psychological symptoms or behavioral symptoms. So it's okay to use that, that justification. Um, Mom, I, I really think uh, you need a medical checkup. Yeah. Now, it can be, uh, it can be kind of touchy to uh, communicate to the healthcare provider your concerns. You can do that in a, in a private letter. Mm hmm a phone call, or uh, it's always best to accompany your your spouse or your parent to a doctor's visit. Now, most people who work with older adults uh, will definitely take the family's report, the spouses, the caregiver, the adult child. They, they want to hear from that person to know how, how they're functioning. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is less true of people in the young old age group, people in their 60s and early 70s. You know, those people generally are, you know, very independent and speak up for themselves. Now, a lot of older people in their 80s and 90s do too, but, <laughs> right. but the family's report really is becomes, uh, becomes more important. Is, cause do you feel like in terms of the, and, and this is just from a uh, anecdotal from what we see with our, our client experience is this kind of, it's really tough for people to admit vulnerabilities. Oh yeah. So it's maybe somebody forcing them like, we're going to go see our primary care physician and I want to talk, just talk generally, right? Is, right? You know, here's a symptom here or there. I want to just make sure they're aware of and see if we can just talk about more, but the whole, I don't know, the vulnerability part in I don't know if it's a, it's just a, a general, this is as people age, they're more, they, they just, it's their own mortality they're addressing, right? Is there concern about addressing that? Cause that's just another step to, well, I'm getting old and that's something I'm, I'm not right. As I'm not old, even though if I'm whatever age I am, I'm, I'm not old and I don't want to address me passing away. So all of those things that we, we kind of see is, you know, there's, there's a lack of maybe self-awareness of wanting to admit something. And, or, or looking to address it, even if there's nothing wrong, is to have that conversation. That, that lack of, or that reluctance to acknowledge aging is more common in younger adults and as people transition to old age. Okay. You're not going to find many 70-year-olds or 80-year-olds who don't want to talk about aging or don't want to acknowledge aging and talk about it honestly. And, I'm, you know, many of them say you're only as old as you feel. And, you know, they try to stay and, you know, they, they're, they're very active. Sure. But none of them will, none of them will deny that they're getting closer to death or that their body is changing. Yep. Death anxiety, most of them have come to terms with death anxiety. That, that sort of peaks in adolescence, <laughs> midlife. Yep. And then slowly resolves. I mean, most people, as they as they age, become more uh, accepting of the inevitability of of death. What what people are afraid of is dependency. Sure, um, not death. They're afraid of not being able to live independently and do the things they want to do. Okay, and really, the the conversations we have with our clients, they 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 make this statement to us of, "Hey, I'm not going to go to a nursing home." 
And I'm concerned about that if I go to a nursing home, it's going to raid my financial resources and there's going to be nothing left for my spouse. And again, it's always easy to maybe say when you're, you're far away from it and you're not in that moment. That seems to be just be a common phrase that we hear uh, from either the population we work with or people that we talk to. Mm-hmm. Are you hearing that? And if you are hearing it, what what's your response to that? Everyone shares that that fear. I'm a boomer, and you know I certainly don't want to spend the last few weeks, even or months of years of my life in a nursing home. But it's very important to realize a few things. First of all, there are many other options besides nursing homes. Yep. Nursing homes and also nursing homes are getting better, but there are other options. There's assisted living facilities and retirement um, area, uh, retirement homes of various sorts. But still, people don't want to leave their homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what we're going to see is that the the demands of of the baby boomer generation is going to change the culture so that more uh, more options will be available to keep people in their homes, especially um, technologies which will uh, help people function. It's a very, very active area of research uh, nationally, internationally, uh, and at the University of Maine, that uh, there will be different uh, forms of uh, technologies that are going to enable a person to stay safely in their home, uh, whether that be uh, robotics that mm-hmm. provide uh, direct physical care or interactive technologies that uh, remind people to take their medications or keep them safe in the environment that uh, will enable them to be home. There's also uh, different social movements that are uh, underway for for uh, groups of people who um, are, are friends or either new friends or old friends who will be living together in naturally occurring retirement communities who can take care of each other. Uh, either in uh, new homes that they share mm-hmm. or or in networks uh, within home communities that already exist. I, I mentioned that I went to the AARP um, uh, listening study uh, session for the state of Maine. That was, I, I think, three people brought that up about, you know, they're hearing that happening in, in New York State and in the West Coast, especially the, the kind of common living communities people with shared values and uh, shared beliefs and getting together and looking out for each other and kind of banding resources and, and putting those things together. And, and that was a, that was a complaint about, well, what is there like that here? And it's, it seems like it's not here yet, but that, that, that demand, or at least that, that voice is, was, was being heard, which I, which I loved there. I just visited a, uh, an intergenerational retirement community in Portland, Oregon. And, uh, People here uh, in Bangor are interested in replicating this uh, this project, and and it's very it's very good both for the kids and the older adults mm-hmm. to be in these intergenerational mm. communities. It's it's a healthy thing. We're not supposed to be uh, generations are not supposed to be isolated from one another. So it, it works great for for all generations. The third the the sandwich generation, the in between <laughs> generation too. Sure benefits from it. And uh, so you're going to be seeing more and more of those communities uh, and those options. Hmm, awesome. Okay. And I guess that's, that's another question I wanted to get into then is because in terms of dependency, it feels like if you were maybe living in a more dense population area, yep. your independence might go up because you have more things available to you and more more accessibility to, to whether it be services or, or you know, food or, or entertainment or socialization. So basically, so I guess my question is due to being a rural state and the weather that we have, do you feel like there's certain behaviors or concerns that are more unique to living in the Northeast than maybe if you were in Florida or other other types of maybe warmer climates with, with different population patterns? Yeah, I think there's several demographic uh, patterns that are that affect aging and aging in Maine. One is, there are, there are kind of two populations. One, people who have lived here for decades and decades grew up here. Uh, and the other group, people who retired here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came here uh, when they were still healthy, uh, healthy fifty in their 50s and 60s, and now are aging in place and getting frailer. Their kids may live elsewhere. They, you know, usually have developed friendships, but a lot of people in that demographic spend their winters in Florida or mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's more, you know, their 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 roots are not as deep. 
so that's that can be challenging for for them as they get as they get frailer because they they just don't have the wide social network. Mm-hmm. Now, if they've been here, you know, twenty years, and they, they may be, but again, the, their friends may be maybe snowbirds and uh, or be getting frail themselves, so they're vulnerable. The uh, people with deep social networks in Maine who have lived there here their whole life. Um, may still struggle for the same reasons their children may live elsewhere. Although I, I find I don't know if this is necessarily true. I suspect it is that that if their kids grew up here, then they're, they're, there's likely still one or two of them around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they may not live in the same town anymore, but but they're 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 commonly a resource more commonly than people who retired here for sure. Mm-hmm. There's more commonly that family members, siblings, or adult children to be around to, to help. So those are uh, two groups of people face face uh, different challenges. I think the people who have lived here all their lives tend to have uh, deeper networks, but but people are spread out, and it's still it's still challenging with uh, lack of uh, concentrated services and frail networks that are dependent either on one relative or one friend whose whereabouts and, and own health may be fragile. AARP had a listening session the other day for the state of Maine, uh, basically that, that aging plan that they're, they're, they're devising right now. Yep. And one of the basic, that was the, the theme that was just hit on for the entire two hours was the caregiving support, right? Is, mm. you know, we just don't have a lot of infrastructure. We haven't funded a lot of infrastructure into caregivers, especially with remote, right? Is how remote people are and trying to get people access to caregiving support or training, right? If you're caring for your spouse or, you know, your parent or, and you got a full-time job yourself and maybe you're, you have kids or grown kids, whatever the situation is that I've never done it before. Right. And I don't, and at what stage can I not take care of them? And how do you progress from one level of care to the next? And what, how does the system work? And boy, that was just like pervasive across that. And which was, I'm glad that that was, that was a lot of the conversation of across all income levels, right? Is, you know, the challenges are even more, I, I think, for the lower income levels and, and just even navigating the legalese of it and, and communicating and, and talking to people about their, their specific challenges. But I thought that was a, that was a, a really kind of neat theme that was happening uh, from that. I do want to uh, kind of reverse. Uh, so we talked to about mood and emotional disorders, and we've started to get into the, the cognitive side. I want to go back to almost the same question I asked you about uh, developing an emotional disorder, about if if I'm maybe early retire, uh, retirement or early, yeah, or I guess early in that stage. And again, I, I, I'm trying to think about those that are concerned about developing that condition of how do I know developing dementia, developing dementia. Yeah. How do do I then look at this and say, I'm concerned of if I'm seeing these, I don't know what the warning signs are and how do I know that I am seeing warning signs and is there something I could be doing about it than not addressing it? And hopefully it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, first of all, to uh, answer that question, you have to know what's normal for uh, normal aging. Right. And uh, so there are certain cognitive changes that are typical of, of aging, and they start early in life. They, uh, our, our memories peak at age 30. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, so all downhill from there. <laughs> and by memory, I mean episodic memory. I mean uh, encoding uh, information about conversations or, or uh, events in one's life uh, or learning new facts. And it doesn't necessarily become problematic until, you know, you really start noticing some forgetfulness. Gen- generally, people notice uh, in their 50s. Mm-hmm. Women especially notice in the perimenopausal years because there's more of an abrupt change around that time. Now, women in general have better verbal memories than men do. Hmm. Men can remember numbers. They can remember baseball. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they can't remember a conversation they had last night, you know. We, we struggle that way. So generally in, you know, in one's 50s or 60s, people start to notice word-finding difficulties. Uh, what's that called? Or they forget if they, uh, conversations, did I ask you this already? Mm-hmm. Did you tell me this already? Those kind of, those kinds of things, you know, usually you just have to ask that question once or twice. Um, so word-finding problems, uh, remembering convers- or forgetting conversations, forgetting what you were meant to do forgetting what you came into the room to get 
Mm. Uh, forgetting where you put something. These are common things that become more difficult with, with age mm-hmm. and don't necessarily indicate you're developing dementia. They're more indicative of the fact that your memory doesn't encode new information as well as it used to. So if you want to remember something, you have to activate the frontal part of your brain, the frontal cortex, and you do that by thinking and, and attending. So most of the forgetfulness that we associate with getting older is really those two things, uh, being distracted by something uh, and uh, not really paying attention. Okay. And the fact that your your encoding, your recording system is not as efficient. Hmm. So as you get older, you can't multitask and, and hope to remember something. You really have to focus and concentrate in order to uh, record new information. And then retrieving that information uh, is more challenging unless you, you practice and rehearse it more. Mm-hmm. Those are what's that. That's what's normal. And uh, oh, and also retrieving nouns and names of people, and to some degree recognizing faces. That's that's a little bit more challenging too. Now it, it's it's a it's a gradual progression from there to uh, when it becomes more worrisome. So getting lost in a familiar place, forgetting a a familiar recipe or instructions, forgetting to do something that you or forgetting how to do something that you're normally able to do. Okay. Asking questions repetitively, like more than twice uh, in a short period of time. Those are those are markers that something more serious is, is happening. There are also behavioral personality changes that, that you see early in these diseases, meaning like Alzheimer's disease and the other conditions that lead to dementia. Uh, for example, uh, people can become much more anxious than they used to be or mm-hmm. more irritable than they used to be. Um, people become more, uh, the term we use is apathetic. Uh, they lose interest in going out. They mm-hmm. lose interest in meeting new people. They lose interest in activities, hobbies. They lose interest in caring for themselves. So uh, there's some overlap here with depression. Sure. Yeah. Some of these changes in behaviors could be depression, but sometimes the depression can be one of the early signs of, of a condition that's going to get worse with time, such mm-hmm. as Alzheimer's disease. In, in terms of progression, right? Yep. So if you're you know, outside of the normal aging and you, you're starting developing some of those signs of, of dementia, what, and there, I, I hate the word normal because there's a lot yep. of what, what is normal, yep. maybe it's an average, That's right. but what do you, uh, what do you think about in terms of progression of when you start seeing signs to when you, when you start really maybe becoming, whether it be dependency is what you talked about previously, yep. that you're just now completely dependent on, on somebody or something for, yep. for help. Yep. Uh, what, what do you see there? Well, it's important to pay attention to these uh, these frustrating quirks of memory that are normal, but then slowly get a little worse to the point where there becomes concern about daily functioning. This this transition period is called mild cognitive impairment. Okay, people can still live independently and drive and manage most of their affairs, but as it as it goes along the the path to dementia some vulnerabilities develop. So people may have more uh, traffic accidents. They may Mm -hmm. get lost, not be able to navigate as well. They may not manage their finances as well. They may not manage their medications as well. And very importantly, they become more more vulnerable to financial scamming. Yeah. They start losing their judgment. And that's the sign that they're starting to transition to the next phase, which is uh, early dementia. Gotcha. Now, once dementia, uh, what, what separates that mild cognitive impairment from dementia is um, we have clinical criteria to determine that, but that's really the transition from when a person can really live independently to when they need gotcha. more oversight. Is there, so in terms of what you see today, if if someone's coming and, and seeking your help and, and your team's help and you've assessed them as being maybe earlier dementia, is there anything that you see or you can do or anything in an apparatus of control that can slow progression over time than, than what's normal or average? Yes. The earlier, the better is the rule that applies here. Okay. But we do know that several things help people function better longer and may even slow the progression of the disease. So those things are outlined in several reports. Mm-hmm. The most recent report is uh, something from the World Health Organization, which reviews all the evidence of lifestyle 
uh, factors that help preserve brain health as you progress into old age. And the Federal Center for Disease Control, the CDC, is initiating a nationwide effort, uh, Healthy Brain Aging Initiative, and the main CDC is participating in this. And we have a, we have a, we have an initiative at Northern Light Health called uh, MENA, the main initiative for neurologic aging and health, or MENA. That's awesome. And, and this, this promotes healthy brain aging lifestyle factors and also uh, gives people opportunities to participate in research about healthy brain aging and, and dementia. But the kinds of things that are known to be helpful, first of all, dietary interventions. So we all know about the Mediterranean diet, which is low inflammation, a lot of antioxidants, lots of fruits and vegetables, uh, very uh, reduced levels of animal fats, reliance mm-hmm. mostly on vegetable oils for and nuts as sources of fats does allow coffee and wine <laughs> so there's some there's some joy in the mediterranean diet yeah and uh so that that kind of diet that is uh, more plant based and vegetable oil based is uh there's pretty pretty strong evidence that it slows uh, cognitive decline we even recommend it to people who already have more advanced dementia because mm. uh it, it may be Never too late for something that's healthy, especially uh, it's healthy not just for the brain, but of course for the heart. Sure, and, right. sure. And healthy, a healthy cardiovascular system promote, uh, promotes good brain health too. The next thing is physical activity. Now, uh, you know, it's it's commonplace to be aware that 150 minutes of vigorous physical activity <laughs> a week is, you know, is sort of known to uh, help uh, the heart and the brain. But, you know, that's not... That's that's thirty minutes five days a week. Right. right. So that's that's a reasonable target, but you know some of us don't manage that either. And we know that even a little bit is better than nothing. That what I recommend to my patients, no matter whether they they still have healthy brains um, or they're in more advanced dementia, is that they should move at least every hour. Mm-hmm. Get up, stretch, move yep. around, and if they're able to walk, get a ten minute walk in several times a day. That meets uh, that meets that cr- criteria, but um, just sitting for long periods of time is uh, that's yep. that's damaging. Yep. It also helps their pain levels if they if mm. they move around. Yeah. The next is getting adequate sleep. While you're sleeping, your brain doesn't produce beta amyloid, which is the which is a, a pathologic protein which gets deposited in the brain as sort of the initiating step of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, while you're awake, beta amyloid is produced. While you're sleeping, it's not produced. And there, uh, there's a system in the brain that sort of clears it uh, mm-hmm. during sleep, the glymphatic system. So uh, we've known for a long time that sleep deprivation increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia, cognitive decline. Uh, we didn't know exactly why. Uh, this is one potential mechanism. That's of, really interesting. Why, is, why sleep yeah. is uh, helpful at that preserving brain health. We also know that relaxation, uh, meditation, relaxation is helpful. Stress reduction techniques, um, helpful. People always ask about cognitive training. Should they do Sudoku and crossword <laughs> puzzles and, and the like? And there's, you know, a lot of commercially available computer-based brain games, brain fitness games that um, are available. Uh, there's conflicting evidence. We know that these things tend to improve function in the things that they test. Like if you exercise memory or exercise process, rapid processing and reaction time, you're going to improve on that game. Right. But, uh, we don't, there isn't convincing evidence that it generalized to overall brain health. We still, uh, I, I still encourage those kind of brain active behaviors because it does help that function mm-hmm. and it's often enjoyable and it gives a person a sense of agency and empowerment to uh, exercise their brain so to speak so i want to ask and just another question here uh, kind of related is like okay day one you you kind of find that you you have been diagnosed or you have confirmation here about having dementia whatever the stage is how how does that person how sh- do you think that person should be communicating that to parties in their life again part of this is that vulnerability and that dependence of hey by you knowing this about me maybe maybe you have a little bit more understanding and a little bit and maybe they don't want their sympathy but maybe there's this 
you're allowing me to function at a at my best level because you have an understanding of who I am and what what I'm dealing with today. How are you seeing people communicate it or not? And do you think they should? It's a very personal personal question for a person yep. to answer, and they have to answer it for themselves. The Alzheimer's Association and and I uh, and a lot of clinical people think that open, honest communication about diagnosis is best. Mm-hmm. We, we sometimes get requests from families not to mention the word Alzheimer's disease, yep. if that is the diagnosis. But we assume that people want honest, open information about their diagnoses and what they do with that information is certainly up to them. Uh, these diagnoses can be very stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they do allow people to prepare they need to prepare their financial future and their legal future, and their uh, they need to prepare their family family's expectations. It doesn't have to happen right away because there's time, usually, unless the diagnosis has been delayed because of denial or avoidance or for whatever reason, and behaviors and symptoms are already far advanced, then I think family education about a person's behavior is very important. I, I noticed President George H.W. Bush' behavior had, had changed. He was pinching women. Mm. And uh, I know it was embarrassing for Barbara Bush, uh, mm. probably embarrassing for everybody around. And it's so clearly related to cognitive changes that were occurring. No one acknowledged that or said that. It, it was sort of like left to you know, some people to think ill of him. And this was completely out of character for him. Right, It was so obviously related to the the same disease that was affecting his mobility. Mm. It was affecting his motor system, and it was affecting his ability to speak and to control impulses. It's a very common thing for people to have that kind of impulse control problem. So that, that was a situation where I thought a public conversation about the symptom would have, would have been helpful to, Mm -hmm. to decent, to destigmatize what was obviously uh, a symptom of a brain disorder, of a brain disease. And that, that, that can be true of, of people in, in families, although usually uh, it, it's rare that a family doesn't want to talk about it openly or a patient doesn't okay. talk about it openly. I mean, you have to be selective. This diagnosis, uh, the diagnosis of a dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or other dementias can be very isolating. People stop coming around. If the person with dementia doesn't recognize you, for example, or mm. doesn't speak, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to remember that you just visited, uh, there's not a lot of reinforcement yeah. for staying engaged. And so the spouse may notice that friends don't come around anymore. So, you know, it can be an isolating experience. I, I think open discussion about the symptoms of the dementia and, and the expectations and what might be helpful uh, or what might be good ways to spend time with a person with dementia. For example, we know that people with advanced dementia respond very well to music. Mm-hmm. And we, we generally respond well to music that we listened to when we were in high school or sure. young adults. Yeah. There's a wonderful program called Music and Memory that's used in a lot of nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And it's, you know, you can, you can use music uh, people with advanced dementia still can respond to music, can still respond to art, can still respond emotionally to things, and uh, even if they can't verbalize their feelings. And so uh, using time with a person with dementia to look at old photos or to uh, listen to music can really be a way to connect with them emotionally. And so so, that, it's a great way to trigger something, right? Is is because again, if you're looking for feedback, there may or may not be a trigger that happens from music or or photos, or, but you're more likely maybe to to receive some feedback from their enjoyment of that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It makes the time with them pleasant for everyone. Yeah. Can you? I, I want to kind of wrap up the the conversation first of all uh, in terms of the the Alzheimer's dementia. What do you think? Again, if you had your crystal ball or time machine, if you're looking at the future, what do you think the next 30 years looks like for kind of your field, right? Is, is what you see in the, in the geriatric side and how things develop or what you hopefully would like to see develop? Well, it's easy to feel a little discouraged because clinical trials, so many clinical trials have uh, failed recently and there's a um, sense of futility focused primarily on the uh, amyloid hypothesis that 
led to creation of several methodologies to remove amyloid from the brain, thinking that that would halt the development of Alzheimer's disease. And typically it was done too late Hmm. in people who already have symptoms. We still hope that uh, reducing brain amyloid levels can be helpful for people who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease but do not yet have symptoms. So if you do it early enough. Okay. But there are many other mechanisms that potentially would be helpful that are being investigated now. So um, we have to have hope. It's a very complicated problem. One thing that we've been working on in collaborations with people at Jackson Lab and the University of Maine is uh, our research studies that look at the interaction of developing symptoms, developing early biomarkers in the brain, and uh, and genetics. Uh, Investigators at Jackson Lab have added several new genes to, to the panel of of genes that influence not only risk, but more importantly, perhaps, resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, why some people who have some Alzheimer's disease in their brain don't develop symptoms, or at least can tolerate the disease for decades without mm-hmm. developing cognitive uh, memory or cognitive symptoms. This kind of complex modeling of genetics and uh, developing uh, symptoms of the disease just is, is a new approach. There are also many new avenues of of research. Uh, Some investigators just reported uh, really strong evidence implicating a gingival bacteria, bacteria that's found in the mouth and the gums, uh, in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So that there there may be a subset of people, not not everybody Mm -hmm. by any means, a subset of people uh, for whom that drives the disease. Um, So we should add oral health as as another potentially preventative measure. So, uh, and there are many new molecules being tested to uh, help neurons, brain cells, uh, become more, uh, become stronger and more resistant to uh, disease effects. Uh, Many different mechanisms, genetic, uh, molecular, that are being investigated. And we're We'll be looking at some of those. There are new also molecules that slow the progression of tau through the brain, tau tangles. Remember, Alzheimer's disease is defined by both amyloid plaques in the brain and tau tangles. These are two pathologic proteins. And we've been focused on amyloid, which is the first step, but there are uh, now ways that we might be able to intervene in the uh, progression of tau tangles through the brain. And that correlates more closely with the development of symptoms. Uh, Although... You know, our initial clinical trials have been uh, a little discouraging. Uh, There's reason to be hopeful. And as we think about the Healthy Brain Initiative of the World Health Organization and and the uh, Center for Disease Control, federal and state in Maine, we hope that we'll be able to make a difference at the population health level uh, Mm -hmm. as people become better about changing diets and incorporating more physical and cognitive activities. Excellent. I want to wrap up with a, so this is a personal question to you, right? Is you kind of have this idea of retirement success and kind of find that people that have, they're finding their purpose in retirement away from their career, that that, that those are the ones that kind of lead to really uh, more fulfilled, happier lives in retirement. So for you personally, as you know, you're, you're forecasting your life and your retirement, if you had your crystal ball, what would you kind of say that would be for you? would be kind of uh, that, that thing that you'd, you'd always wanted to do or, or on that wish list to, to lead that fulfilled retirement? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid my uh, retirement list is, uh, is, is kind of dull. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything dull. I think we've, we've encountered it all at, the, at this stage. Well, first of all, I hope, I hope to be able to work into my early 70s, yep. uh, you know, another uh, eight years perhaps. Yep. And then after that, if I'm capable, I'd want to do more writing than I've been able to do while I'm also, you know, doing research or mm-hmm. and seeing patients. I want to get to the gym more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. And I want to do more travel. You know, I mean, that's the uh, things that I have either put off or um, haven't done enough of. What's the uh, what's that top destination for you for travel? Like, where's the place you always wanted to go that you never got to go? I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. And, okay. Uh, uh, want to go. I haven't done it. I've never been to Africa either. 
So I'd like to go there and haven't explored Eastern Europe as much as I would like. So those are those are some destinations that I hope to get to. Nice. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining the show today. We really appreciate your time and, and lending the expertise for the audience today. Uh, just wanted to thank you for, for everything. This is just fascinating uh, conversation to hear from your end. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks. Really good episode today in terms of the, uh, the podcast and I think from our perspective, they're just, this is such a deep topic that, you know, we just run into this, this fear, this feeling, uh, this dread, uh, about yeah. kind of what does this mean about retirement? And, and people are very fixated on that, uh, within their retirement of, you know, that they're, they're living with, with kind of this thought. So again, while we really liked having, uh, Dr. Singer here today, was to address it, right? Is mm. let's let's make it real. Let's bring it to the room. Let's really uh, kind of beat it up a little bit and yeah. and round it. And one of the things I I think the the biggest thing that he, he kind of addressed for me that I I loved that he took I took away from it was this um, idea of in in when I'm sitting down with clients is this idea of. I'm, I'm usually talking about this idea of mortality, right? Is you have death and maybe you have an unacceptance of death and, and some of these fears about death. And I, I love that he had, he just had a completely different permutation. To yeah. That, oh, yeah. Right? That this, this was all about this fear of dependency. Yeah. They, they've accepted death. Yeah. You know, that that's not what they're, they're kind of concerned with and that, that's not what they're facing. Um, so all, all these, all these emotional, cognitive, disorders and diseases what they represent to people is dependency and right. increased dependency in a world where i have less and less less people that that i can depend on mm. uh so what a what a hard world that is where i need somebody i'm probably maybe of the highest dependency i maybe have ever had in my life on anything other than maybe when i'm first born right yeah and i'm probably more aware of it at that point right and maybe, you know, I have kids that are away or my spouse is no longer here. All of those things. Oh, man, that was that was fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely echo everything you just said there, Ben. It was a really important conversation for us to have. So, you know, certainly well worth the time we spent with Cliff. One piece that really stuck out to me, and it's sort of a recency bias, um, he was talking about, and I'm not going to bring up the medical terms or even attempt to because I know <laughs> I'm going to butcher that. But, you know, the process of the brain when we sleep and how essentially it was while we are awake, the brain produces this element that essentially can be linked to these diseases. And while we sleep, the brain not only doesn't produce it, it also sort of clears it out. And I was actually listening to a podcast uh, about a week ago and there was they had a guest on the podcast. Um, his name was Dr. Michael Lennox. And he was actually talking about that same phenomenon. And that was the first time I'd heard it. So to hear uh, Dr. Singer bring it up today, it was it was really cool. Yeah. So kind of kind of neat from obviously knowing how it works. And obviously, we always hear, right, eat better, be, have more exercise, yeah. get more sleep. But the why, right? right? Why is that important? And especially it's more important as we're aging mm. um, as well and, and uh, tying it to that fear that we have. Yeah. And I... I think what what I see and we see a lot is when people have uh, enough kind of manifested pain in their life, right? Is in and fear is this something that you you know are motivated by as well. Mm. Is using that to then create change in your life. And I think he gave us a lot of that evidence to well, you know, here's what it looks like. Here's what it is. Um, here's how we can uh, address it. But if if you're doing these certain things that you mentioned, the Mediterranean diet and how how you know that really has positive uh, links to you know either slowing progression or or minimizing some of the impact. That, that's a mm. really great point. So yeah. I, I like that it, all of that was kind of in there in the show today because uh, again personally you know I had a uh, uh, my my grandmother developed uh, developed dementia and seeing seeing his, the impact to my grandfather while he was trying to support her and. He probably got help too late because right? mm -hmm. he was in a house with her and, and trying to manage her as she's, you know, getting physical with him and, and trying to leave. And, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to admit when you need help and what resources are out there. So 
you know, I, I just thinking about this situation, why the, why is this conversation important? You know, I think though, I think there's, even if going back in time, I wish I had had this uh, information because that would have been really helpful. Yeah. So yeah, again, I, I, I just really appreciate everyone's time today and, and spending a little bit more time on this topic because it, it's, it's very important. And as we talked about it, we brought a little bit of financial resources in. There's all these things impact everything in your life, including financial, which is why when we're talking to our clients is we have a financial lens to it and, and it always impacts everything. So it's, yeah. it's just better to address it. Yeah. So uh, obviously we want to uh, wrap this episode up. So we are, uh, if you want more resources, you can always go to our blog, uh, blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash eight. So the number eight, and you can find more resources from Dr. Singer, more links to resources in the state of Maine, uh, the transcript of this uh, podcast, if you want to read a certain part, just always appreciate your, your time and your attention. And we'll see you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.